0: From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abi, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's clinical and translational science center. With a PhD in Biomedical Sciences on the horizon, and plans for a postdoc studying ALS, an angiosarcoma diagnosis forced Dr. Corey Painter into a whole new area of study, with unknown outcomes and limited information. When the most valuable resource she could find was a Facebook page of nine members, Dr. Painter was inspired to initiate more online social communities. Since 2015, Dr. Painter, the Associate Director of Operations and Scientific Outreach at the Broad Institute, has started the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project and the Angiosarcoma Project. Just this month was the launch of the Metastatic Prostate Cancer Project, the third initiative to allow metastatic cancer patients to contribute stored tumor samples, saliva, medical records, and their stories this week, join us in honor of the project's launch and learn more at mpcproject.org. Hello, Dr. Painter. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. You focus extensively on cancer research. What is it that drew you to this area of study?
1: That's a great question. I was drawn to this area of study out of necessity. So I was trained as a biochemist. But then I was diagnosed with an incredibly rare and aggressive cancer right as I was supposed to graduate with a PhD in biomedical sciences. And I was supposed to follow that up with a postdoc setting ALS, all drawing on those biochemistry skills. But I decided that having this exceedingly rare cancer diagnosis and as a scientist knowing that there was no resources to guide any type of research toward this particular area, Mandated that I became a cancer researcher.
0: Yeah, that's incredible.
1: I had my second surgery within two weeks of each other, a week before I was supposed to walk at my own graduation. And because it was so close to my graduation, they still had my name on the back of the chair where I was supposed to sit. And I had to delay graduating. And my PI was kind enough to let me stay as a graduate student for that next year. The pro- my prognosis was extremely poor. Mm. And we did not think that I would be alive to actually go back and sit in that chair, stand up and walk and receive my diploma. That was almost seven years ago. Can you tell us more about your diagnosis and your experience? Yeah, it was a Friday evening that I found a lump in my breast. So that left me the weekend to start Google searching, you know, lumps, breasts, and find everything I could out about breast cancer which would be the natural inclination to a young woman who found a lump in their breast. And I was encouraged by some of the statistics, although now, in retrospect, knowing what I know now, that was there was a lot of false hope that was provided to me in those first initial searches. When I finally went through the diagnostic process, it took about three months for them to come up with the word angiosarcoma. It is something I had never heard about. It's something that when the first inkling of it came across in a cytology report from a fine needle aspiration and I Google searched, I was absolutely devastated by it because it was in, had an incredibly poor prognosis. It has a five-year survival rate of about 30%. The vast majority of people who are diagnosed with this disease already have advanced disease and typically have very poor outcomes. At first, I went to PubMed as a scientist so that I could understand what research there was, what we knew about it, what are the molecular drivers. And because there's only about 300 people a year diagnosed with this disease, almost nothing was known. There was a couple retrospective studies where a major academic institute would look through its entire catalog of patients over the course of 40 years and dig up 19 or 20 patients that had had it. And so very poor statistics, very little known, followed by case reports that said things like sarcomas typically have a poor prognosis, angiosarcoma has the worst. And those all of those put together with the one study that really showed the largest cohort in an extremely steep Kaplan-Meier curve, which looks at survivability over, the, over years, made me have this sense of vertigo looking down at that steep curve. And it was... Absolutely devastating, to say the least. And at the same time that I was looking for information in the literature and I was looking for information in Google and finding almost nothing, I was also trying to connect with anybody else who had this disease. There was information that I had to have. And it wasn't just information. I had to have that human connection with anybody else who had survived the disease. So I would Google search other people that were looking for the same thing, and I'd find them. And I would reach out to them and they wouldn't respond. And I would Google search their name and find their obituary every single time. And every time that happened, it was devastating. It was like being diagnosed and being told you're going to die all over again. And in a last ditch attempt, I went into Facebook and I found this very small support group with maybe eight or nine people. But each one of those were people that were living, they were alive, they knew more about this disease than the collective literature. And that moment where I stumbled upon that group started by my friend Lauren Ryan had changed the course of my life like I never could possibly have expected. It led to me being here today talking about the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project and the Angiosarcoma Project. It changed the course of my scientific career. It changed the course of my family life. It changed my advocacy and everything else. You mentioned the Angiosarcoma Awareness Project. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. When I was diagnosed, the first thing that popped into my head after the dust had settled was that there has to be some way to spawn research into this disease. And as a scientist, I think that was a natural inclination. What never would have occurred to me was to start an actual foundation to do just that. But it did to my friend Lauren Ryan, who was by all measures and larger than life personality. She was phenomenal. Diagnosed exactly like me with a br- primary breast angiosarcoma. She was diagnosed a year before me and decided that she was not going to just sit by and, and let this take her down without doing something to make an impact. And so she got a team together and filed all the paperwork necessary in order to start a nonprofit, a 501c3 called Angiosarcoma Awareness, Inc. And her endeavor was to raise enough money to put a thousand dollars into cancer research, and which is a, a very worthy goal. When I met her, having been through the scientific process, understanding the way science happens and gets funded, I broke her heart a little bit, and and told her there's really that's not going to be impactful. It's not going to be a game changer, and, and I'm happy to work with you, and let's do something more. And she was maybe upset for 5 minutes and then she pulled herself up by the boots straps as she always does and said all right what do we have to do together we we partnered and decided that we were going to raise awareness and just like the name angiosarcoma awareness suggests and we were going to raise funds and specifically put those into labs that could have a laser focus on angiosarcoma and because I was a scientist I took over as the chief scientific officer and would try and network by talking with people that I would find in the literature about how their research may overlap with angiosarcoma if it wasn't already, and what a small grant might be able to do in order to tack on an angiosarcoma project along with what the main ideas of the lab were already focused on. So we've put out several grants and awards as a result of this. Some of the things we try to do is initiate collaborations among the different researchers that we fund. We try and get them to release negative data. And a lot of the things that we've been trying to do is are generate data and generate models of the disease. Things basically that can transcend those individual labs and help other people in not just the angiosarcoma community, but the larger cancer community. And we require from through our funding mechanism for people to make those resources should they be generated, accessible to other researchers as well. You currently direct the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project. Can you tell us
0: a bit more about the project and what you're doing there?
1: Sure. The Metastatic Breast Cancer Project was launched in October of 2015, and it is a direct-to-patient initiative, meaning we work directly with patients, and we work with them through social media and online resources and through our amazing advocacy partners by directly asking them to come to our website, which is at mbcproject.org, in order to tell us a little bit about their experiences with metastatic breast cancer, and also to fill out an online consent form, and then also a medical release form so that we can understand where they've been treated and where their biopsies are, where their tissue may be. What we do is we learn from their own reported information, what some of their experiences have been. This was all initiated, by the way, by Dr. Nikhil Wagley, who is a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber and also a genomicist at the Broad Institute. And Nick and I built this out together and we built it out in lockstep with patients and with patient advocates. And we knew that we wanted to ask a series of questions for, from patients at the start. And this was really to help guide us in understanding some of the experiences that patients have had especially in order to identify people that had extraordinary responses to different therapies so that we could specifically study their tumors in, in order to learn why. Why did they have those exceptional responses when others didn't? Or to find people that had been diagnosed at very young ages. How come? Is there something different about the DNA that is in their tumors that is leading to such a young diagnosis or in their germline? So we had a series of questions that we thought that those survey questions could, could help us with. And over time, we realized that that was indeed the case, that by asking patients to tell us about their experiences with metastatic breast cancer, not only could we identify cohorts within the larger group of people that signed up for the project, but we could identify needles in the haystack. For example, we could identify hundreds of people that were all diagnosed before the age of 40 that would be difficult to find at any one institution. We could identify people who had exceptional responses to different types of drugs, different classes of drugs. For example, 100 people or more having an exceptional response to Zalota that you would never find at any one institution. But by virtue of making this nationwide, making the barrier to enter very low, people and, and asking people to self-identify what these responses were, we were able to just sift through the data and find people immediately. And I think one of the things that was the biggest surprise to us was not necessarily that we would be able to identify people or that people would be willing to even share this information. It was that this information would be extremely difficult to obtain any other way. It's not necessarily evident when you go into somebody's medical record that they had an exceptional response. Medical records in and of themselves, they're not generated in order to provide exactly that information. And so the process by which you would have to go through thousands and thousands of medical records to obtain them, to carefully groom through them in order to pull out the data that we ask patients to just self-report would be an extraordinary effort. But by engaging patients and having them help us by telling us about their experiences, it just gives us that immediate feedback that we can then go and verify, but that we don't necessarily have to um, recreate or sift through in order to generate. We don't take it lightly that we are building this out with patients, and so we iterate constantly with patient feedback. We wanna make sure that patients understand that this is a true partnership, and that we're not just building this out in order to generate data based off of patients. We're building this out with patients so that together we can make a resource for the entire world Um, to share together. The underlying theme I think that's really important to have everybody listening to this understand is that our goal is to make a clinically annotated genomic data set and share it as widely as possible with everybody who could benefit from it. We want every researcher who's taking time and money and effort to try to generate small data sets to be able to take all of those efforts and focus them on the downstream science that's going to lead to better better treatments, more durable treatments, and ultimately a cure for this disease. One of our major um, initiatives for this year and for next is to try and make the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project representative of the people who actually get the disease. And we had this thought from, this, from the start that maybe we would skew young and maybe we, we would skew white, and that's exactly what happened. Um, it works well for the cohort of trying to study young people, but it does not bode well for the fact that we really want to be able to study people of color. And right now we have very few people that are signed up. And so we have a ton of you know smaller and some larger initiatives that are currently ongoing in order to try to um, level the playing field and make this more of a um, democratized area of research. How do people get involved in the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project? You can go to mbcproject.org and sign up and tell us a little bit about yourself. And if you're so inclined, provide us with informed consent and sign the medical release form. And we take it from there. We do all of the rest of the work. We'll contact your medical providers in order to get copies of the medical records. We'll send a saliva kit so that we can get a sample of your saliva that has cells in it which we can extract the DNA from in order to have non-tumor DNA or germline DNA. We then contact the hospitals after we get the medical records that have the pathology reports in order to get some of the extra leftover tissue samples that are just sitting on the shelf not being researched right now. Or if you do not have this disease but you feel like you wanna try and help us out, spread, the, spread awareness of this project make sure your entire social network is aware of it and ask them to spread it this is how we've been able to reach thousands of people within the first year of launching and how we hope to continue to reach thousands more
0: do you have any specific goals for who you were trying to reach
1: yes absolutely we would love we would love if everybody that had metastatic breast cancer would sign up for this project and so far, we've had quite a few people, as I mentioned before, thousands have already signed up. But what we found is that the vast majority of the people that have signed up are younger and white. And we would really love for this project to accurately represent the population of people that get the disease. And to that, to that end, we're hoping to reach people of color, African-American people, um, Latinas that have this disease, Anybody, anybody who is not traditionally represented um, within biomedical science, we would love them to join this project and help us better understand this disease from every aspect and from every angle. The MBC project is largely driven through outreach in social media and through our advocacy partners so we have when we started the project we had six advocacy partners and if you go to our website you can see we list them in order of advocacy partners that signed on first and so you can see the very first six that are listed are the first six that that really were stakeholders in this entire process and we asked them if they would help us spread the word through their newsletters and through their email lists and through social media and at the same time Nick and myself started tweeting about the project and we started finding people that were um, advocates and that had the disease also tweeting about metastatic breast cancer and we just started to engage directly with them. I was new to Twitter when I first started um, working on this project and took a very deferential approach to understanding the metastatic breast cancer community knowing as a cancer patient myself that each cancer has unbelievably delicate nuances within the communities that you have got to be sensitive to. I just said, I'm new. I, I, I know one thing I don't know about your community, but I want to, and I want to do right by you. So will you teach me and will you take me under your wings? And there were several patients that responded immediately and said, of course, I would be happy to. So they led us into different groups that we may not necessarily been aware of where there was lots of metastatic breast cancer patients that really wanted to learn more. And through this organic grassroots effort, we just came to know a lot of people within the community and, and built these relationships on trust. And it was through that, those I mean, we probably did this for six months before we launched the project. It was really get to know the community. Um, make sure that there was no questions, make sure that there was trust. And some of the people that I feel I'm closest to now were the people that didn't trust us at first and that I had to work you know, very closely with. Um, they are some of my, my best friends now, you know, in real life, and, and I'm so grateful that they stood up and said, wait a minute, you know, I, I wanna know more. I don't necessarily wanna just trust blindly what's going on in research, and you're gonna have to do your work in order to convince me. One of the highlights of this project for me, I think, has been having patients come to conferences like ASCO and help us present posters about the research that they're participating in. And seeing the look on the faces of the clinical oncologists that come up Um, when a patient is so savvy about the project that they understand the science and the relevance of every aspect of it and are describing it as though they were generating it and they're doing it because they are. Thank you for sharing your story with us and your incredible work. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real honor to talk with all of you today. Next time on Think Research. Our goal is to
0: somehow take a picture, a snapshot of the tumor metabolism at a certain time and see whether more anabolic or catabolic processes or which pathways are really activated in that type of tumor. Dr. Carmen Priolo explains how she uses imaging methods to identify metabolic pathways in tumor cells. Harvard Catalyst's Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu. slash thinkresearch.